we're all here. You know, we're all involved in this podcast and getting to do this fun stuff and getting to meet all these new people because that shy boy from Shelby, North Carolina, stepped on a stage one night, December of 1945, and changed the world. So glad for it. So glad for it. Hey, welcome everyone. This is Keith Billick. Happy New Year to everybody. And most importantly, happy birthday to Earl Scruggs. As you can probably tell from the episode title, you're going to be hearing a lot about Earl Scruggs this episode. And another thing I should say in case we have some new listeners here, this is the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. Most of the time, I am interviewing professional banjo players or people who are in the banjo industry somehow. And it's it's a long interview, so this is definitely a different type of episode, but the best way to honor Earl, I thought, was to hear from all the people whose lives he has changed and who are now changing a lot of our lives. You're going to hear from a lot of my banjo heroes, and I imagine a lot of them are your banjo heroes as well. And uh, there's a lot of them, so I'm going to make this quick. You're only going to have to deal with my voice for another few minutes. So in a lot of ways, most of us wouldn't be here without Earl. But in another way, I wouldn't be here without my very lovely Patreon supporters. And today we have two specific patrons of this episode who I need to specifically thank. The first is Mark Van. And he, of course, has the same name, but it is not the late great banjo player from Leftover Salmon. Although, uh, you know, hopefully he, he uses that name to its full advantage and, and channels the banjo powers that come with it. But Mark is apparently a big fan of the show, finds it informative, instructional, and entertaining. Mark, that's what I'm going for. And uh, I'm really happy to hear that you're enjoying it. The other Patreon supporter of today's episode is Connor Stokes. He's been playing for a few years and he lives down in Florida and he's a helicopter flight instructor for the Marines. So... Connor, I thought I was brave playing banjo out in public. That is, uh, that's taken it up to 11 as far as I'm concerned. So hats off to you for that. And uh, hope you keep picking down there. And of course, thank you to you and also Mark Van for becoming Patreon supporters of the show. For the rest of you, check out patreon.com slash banjo podcast and find out how you can help support the show. You can also email the show at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Share the links out on social media. Those are the other ways to support what I do here. And uh, thanks, everyone, for doing all of those things and for tuning in. Today, January 6th, would be Earl Scruggs' 97th birthday, and of course it's impossible to overstate the impact that he has had on the banjo world. So, as I mentioned, I solicited a lot of our favorite banjo players to make their own little birthday messages to Earl, and uh, I think you'll really dig hearing those. But first, I'm actually going to start with my own memory of Earl. 
I never actually met him, but I came pretty close and, and it's a really great memory for me. I had been playing banjo for probably just only about a year or so. And I was sitting in my room one day flipping through the banjo newsletter as, you know, as we all do and saw an ad. It must've been a, a quarter page or maybe even a half page ad for an event called Earl Scruggs Family and Friends. And as I read, I wish I could go back and see the look on my face as I read about this event because there was going to be a performance by Earl Scruggs and a list of other banjo players joining him was going to be Earl, uh, Jim Mills, Tom Adams, Bill Evans, Sonny Osborne, J.D. Crow, Rob McCurry, Joe Mullins, and I'm really scared that I'm forgetting somebody, but you can imagine my excitement uh, reading that list of performers. And not only that, but there was a VIP package that you could buy. And before the performance, you could go watch. And uh, Bill Evans hosted an short interview sessions with each of those banjo players, not completely unlike the interviews that I do now for the Picky Fingers podcast. So all I could think of was that I needed to find a way to get to this event and I was going to buy that VIP thing and I was really going to do it up because I had just started banjo and I was super into it. I was soaking it all up and I didn't have a car, but I was going to figure something out. So fortunately, I was I was up in Lansing, Michigan at the time and fortunately the event was in Dayton, Ohio, so not too far away. So I bought my ticket and I rented a car and drove by myself down to this great banjo event. And it was just one of those experiences. For one thing, it was really important to me to go because at the time Earl was not playing or performing at all. And he was already up there in age. And as far as I was concerned, this was very likely the only or last chance I would ever have to see him in person live. Uh, so I definitely was not going to miss that. But it, it was just one of those events, I don't know if you've experienced this, where you're really into something and you finally go to a place where everybody around you is also as into that thing as you are. And it's it's just a real awesome opportunity to em embrace your inner banjo geek and uh, be among cohorts in that way. So that was super cool. And I, I do consider myself very fortunate not only to be able to go to that. I did end up getting to see Earl perform a couple times after that. He did come out of retirement and do a bit more performing. So that's cool. But that was definitely a very memorable introduction to this whole world of banjo superheroes. Another thing I'll say is that a lot of you know that I used to work as a salesman at Elderly Instruments. So I've sold a lot of banjos in my days, and a lot of those were to beginning players. And, you know, as part of a, a good salesman job, I would always make sure that they're set up with the things they need, the picks and the strings and the strap and the, you know, all the, all the stuff. And I made it part of my routine if somebody was buying a banjo to make sure to ask them, do you have some good banjo music to listen to? That's really important. And of course, if the person was going to be playing anything related to bluegrass music, I would always suggest some sort of good flat and Scruggs music. And if they asked why, I would always respond that it has to be Earl Scruggs because if you just imagine 
bluegrass banjo playing. And if you ask anybody out there to think in their head of what bluegrass banjo music sounds like, the sound that they're hearing in their heads, whether they know it or not, is the sound of Earl Scruggs. And I think that really says a lot that one man has just completely redefined that instrument and sets the standard by which everyone who comes after him gets measured by. So without fail, I would always recommend him as a starting point. I still do. And uh, I have a feeling that that's going to be a common theme throughout a lot of these stories about Earl. So please enjoy all these. There's too many to even list, but they're going to introduce themselves with one exception. Gina Furtado, you might recognize her voice, but she forgot to introduce herself. So Gina Furtado is on here and everyone else will tell you their name. I hope you enjoy all these stories as much as I enjoyed listening to them. And uh, happy birthday, Earl. This is Eric Gibson of the Gibson Brothers. I started playing banjo in 1982 when I was 12 years old and was immediately influenced by Earl Scruggs. Um, I learned out of the Earl Scruggs instructional book, and my teacher, Eric O'Hara, was showing me all these rolls, forward rolls, backward rolls, alternating thumb, forward reverse, all those great Scruggs rolls that all us banjo players use. And, um, you know, at first I was a little frustrated because I was learning the rolls, but I didn't know how they would apply. And he started teaching me Cripple Creek, and I started hearing that melody, even though I wasn't real familiar. I wasn't familiar at all with the song Cripple Creek, the tune Cripple Creek. Um, And so I, I was a little frustrated telling my teacher, I want to learn songs. I wanted to play melody, you know. And um, Anyway, he gave me a cassette of Flat and Scruggs at Carnegie Hall, and I was just mesmerized, <laughs> not just by Earl's playing, but by that audience response to his playing. And you could just feel that crowd coming undone. And it just took my breath away. You know, I'm, I'm, I mean it, you know, and it still does. And, but I, what I could hear, I could hear the melody notes popping out, uh, of, of his solos, you know, and of his backup. And I could hear, I could, even though I could hear the roles within, I could hear the roles and what I was being taught. I could hear Earl's melody notes popping out and just such clean playing. And, and, you know, I can't think of any song that I've ever played or any, you know, any, any banjo player that I listen to and love. I can hear Earl in their playing. And I can't think of a musician who has been more influential in any kind of music. You know, I mean, I mean, every, Every solo that I hear uh, a great guitar player, I don't necessarily uh, always hear B.B. King popping out of it or or, or uh, Roy Buchanan or, you know, I'm just thinking of different guitar players. Even though they're great, I don't hear one person's signature on that guitar solo like I do on every banjo solo. I hear Earl on in every, almost every banjo solo that I ever hear. I hear his influence. And, um, you know, I finally got to meet Earl years later and it is it is the most um gobsmacked <laughs> i've ever been being in another human being's presence um he was in a lobby at ibma in louisville and i just ran up to him 
I, I just was out of control. I, I just was so excited to meet him that I became a big goober, you know, and and I ran up to him and I said, I, I'm going to do something I've always wanted to do. And he took a step back and his wife, Louise, took a step forward. I said, no, sir, I just want to shake your hand. And I, I shook that man's hand and, and that's about it. But it's enough. I got to meet Earl Scruggs and I'm, I'm forever, forever thankful that that man was on this earth um, because he made my life so much better and so many others' lives too. Hey everyone, this is Ron Block. Earl Scruggs is one of my biggest influences. I first heard Earl when I was probably 13 or 14 years old. I'd been playing banjo for maybe a year. I took some lessons from John Hickman out in California. And John played me a bunch of live flattened Scruggs along with Jimmy Martin and other music as well. But I took that Flattened Scruggs music home. John gave me the reel-to-reels to tape off, and so I made cassettes. And I listened to Earl play, must have been thousands of hours of listening to Earl Scruggs. And the level of his excellence, of his timing, of his tone, and the space between his notes, they've pretty much been unequaled since Bluegrass Banjo began. J.R.R. Tolkien, who created the Lord of the Rings, he was creating the underlay for the story for years before he ever wrote a word of the story. So he was creating Middle Earth, he was creating the characters, he was creating the histories and the legends and the theology of Middle Earth. So that's all the underlay for the story. Now you don't hear, you hear bits of the underlay mentioned throughout the Lord of the Rings. You'll hear about the legends and things like that. But what you're, what you're hearing is the story that he's trying to tell. The underlay is just there to create something solid underneath it. So when we learn the foundations of bluegrass music to become bluegrass musicians, it's incredibly important to study the the foundations of it, to study Earl Scruggs. If you're a banjo player, you should be studying Earl Scruggs if you want to play bluegrass and not just modern players. It's really important to go back and be connected to the roots because that will become the underlay. That will become the underlay for the creation of your own music in the future. But when you're learning from Earl, you don't, worry about being original or trying to create your own music right then, what you're trying to do is imitate Earl at the highest level possible, at the most excellent level possible. Try to imitate the sound of his notes, the duration of each note, uh, how he lifts his fingers off the strings between notes, um, the timing of his notes, Every aspect of his playing that you can imitate, strive to imitate it because you'll learn things from that and you'll be able to carry those things over into your own playing. And I'm not talking just about licks, uh, learning Earl Scruggs licks and then inserting them into different songs. I'm talking about something deeper than that. I'm talking about learning his approach to the melody, his approach to the tone and the timing and the taste of what to play, when to play it. So it's possible to learn a lot of Earl Scruggs' licks and solos and playing and backup. And then 
later when you go on to create your own music and make your own music, you reference Earl, but you don't sit there and play Earl Scruggs solos note for note. So the benefit of learning from somebody like Earl Scruggs is what you learn by learning from him, not necessarily the notes or the solos or the tunes. You're learning timing, tone, taste, and all those other aspects. You're learning about dynamics. You're learning what to play behind a vocal and what not to play behind a vocal. You're learning all these different aspects by studying Earl Scruggs. So um, I would encourage everyone to do that. Uh, I don't play like Earl uh, when I play out. You know, when I play shows or I'm creating music, I don't usually play like Earl. But when I'm at home in my studio, I study Earl. I study JD. I study those guys and study their right hand. I play their roles. I learn their tunes. And I spend lots of time doing that. I've spent thousands of hours in my life doing that. And uh, Earl is simply the prototype. And if you want to learn to play bluegrass banjo, it's best to start there. That's a great place to start. Within Earl's playing are most of the roll patterns that you're going to need to play bluegrass banjo. You have the forward roll, uh, let's say as in uh, a little darling pal of mine off of Foggy Mountain Banjo. So you have those forward rolls in there, and then on ground speed from the same record, you have the backward roll. And you have the thumb in out roll there. And then you do it again. Backward roll, and then you have a sort of uh, both mixed again. Backward roll. So contained within all these Earl Scruggs tunes are the right-hand rolls necessary for developing a variety of roll ability so that you can use these things to create your own music in the future. So if you're a beginning banjo player or an intermediate banjo player or even an advanced banjo player, you can learn a massive amount by studying Earl Scruggs. He's, he's the prototype. He's what we're all going for. Hi, my name is Lloyd Douglas. I'm a banjo player from Michigan, currently playing with Full Court Bluegrass. I'd like to thank Keith and Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast for asking me to help honor Earl today on his birthday. I didn't really know Earl personally, even though I felt like it did, just from listening to his music and spending so much time devoted to learning it. But I was blessed to be around Earl a couple of times. One of those times was when I was playing with Jesse McReynolds in Cherokee, North Carolina. Jesse and Earl was just sitting down talking, and I was sitting there with them, just listening and trying to soak up being in their presence, when a man came to ask Earl for an autograph. Earl was holding his Granada and was looking for a place to put it to sign this man's autograph. So I just asked Earl if I could hold his banjo. Well, I held it for a second when I thought, what the hell, I might as well pick a little bit on it. I didn't have any picks on me, but... 
I just picked it without picks for a minute and played a little bit of fireball mail on it. That's my real story, I guess. But growing up, I, I practiced all the Flat and Scruggs albums I could trying to learn what Earl was doing. Even now, if I feel my plane isn't right or I'm out of practice, I just put on the Foggy Mountain Banjo album to get my timing and separation of notes back to where I feel it needs to be. Even after playing for all these years, I still hear things that when I listen to Earl that I didn't hear before. He is still an inspiration to me, and I'm sure he'll be to others for as long as anyone picks up the banjo. Thanks, Earl. Hey, folks, this is Terry Balcom. When I was 10 years old in 1962, I heard Earl Scruggs for the first time in my life. I loved everything about it. It made me want to play like him. And I heard him on the theme of Beverly Hillbillies. And I can listen to that today, and it's such a good kick. But, you know, I really do love Earl Scruggs, not for, you know, what he did there, everything. I got to know him as a person. Me and my wife, Cindy, was in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina a few years ago, and she got the pleasure of going on the bus and interviewing Earl. And I come along, and I sat there and didn't say a word. All I wanted to do is listen to him answer her questions. And... uh that pretty much tells you uh, what Earl meant to me. I'm so happy that me and Cindy got to see him behind stage and on stage. And uh, Earl was a good guy. He, you could tell he was a, such a gentleman. And he's such a professional. When he was telling us on the bus at the interview, he was telling how they would dress rehearsal for the Beverly Hillbillies. And he had to do the words exactly like they was written down and everything. It was so professional, but I could tell Earl loved being in there because he was such a professional. But, uh, you know, 10 years old, you really don't know what you want to do, but I did. It was the five-string banjo of Earl Scruggs. So Christmas of 1962, I did get that banjo, and I'm so happy that I had parents that got behind me and encouraged me to play instead of telling me to get a job. And Earl was the same way. It always made me proud to know Earl was from the same state I was from. And one time I was in Wisconsin playing with Doyle, Lawson, and Quicksilver. And Earl was there. He was playing some shows with Rodney Dillard. And he come up to me and Jimmy and Lou. We were standing there talking. And he said, which one of you boys is from North Carolina? And we said, Earl, we all are. And he said, that's really good. <laughs> one thing comes to mind is the uh, banjo album he did, Foggy Mountain Banjo. And it is literally the Bible of banjo playing. I mean, it is just so on. Everything is the best. The whole band, Flat and Scruggs, you know, they had a really good band, and it made me love bluegrass. After I listened to Earl, only to Earl, then I started realizing how good Flat was and how good Paul and, and all the other guys, you know, and it was just uh, made me enjoy bluegrass more than I thought I could. I don't know how many hours I sat listening to Earl and try to pick up his licks, which Sometimes you thought you did, you get away from it and you come back and it was nothing like it. And you didn't have all the, the tools and the, the cool stuff now to work up breaks in just a few minutes. Back then, you had you was dedicated. You really had to work hard on it if you ever got anywhere. 
You know, Earl plays such a hard drive forward role. And when I was 10, nobody ever showed me very much on the banjo. My dad played guitar, and he kind of steered me to it and everything, but I was doing the wrong role. It was just it didn't sound like Earl. I'd say, Dad, it's not like Earl. He said, well, you're not quite on it yet. So a cousin of mine stopped by, and he was a good banjo player. And I said, hey, Bill, help me out here. My role is no good. And he said, this is how it's done. And when he showed me that, I took it, and then it was like a light coming on in my head. Now it's sounding good. And, uh, you know, you just get so excited to know you finally got something that you were going to use for the rest of your career. And uh, I'm so happy I knew Earl. I would go see him. I would do anything for him. I really do love the man, and I love his music. If it had not been for Earl on the banjo, I probably wouldn't be doing this today, and I still love it. And every five-string banjo player on earth owes Earl a big debt of gratitude because he was the best, and it put us all searching, and we're still all searching. So uh, I salute Earl. Hi, my name is Hillary Hawk, and I'm in Brooklyn, New York. And I wanted to share how I've been obsessed with the Flat & Scruggs TV appearances that were sponsored by the Martha White Flower brand from 1950 to about 1960. I could be wrong about those dates, but it's around that time. Um, these are 30-minute shows that were on WSM Nashville, black and white, and they feature the Flatten Scruggs band, and you can see how the band is interacting together. You can see their set. Um, you can see their outfits and how everything's all buttoned up and perfect. Um, you can see how they add comedy into their routine and just kind of the standard of what a band should look like at the time. And then I don't know about you, but uh, for me, as I was first starting to perform with the banjo, I love how I can see Earl Scruggs walk up to the microphone and take a solo. <laughs> I love how you can see his posture, how he's smiling, he's having a good time, and even just where, even just how he quickly gets to the mic and then quickly walks away. I mean, this was just useful information um, to me and, and still is. I still watch it and think, wow, this is awesome, so good. And one of my favorite licks that he plays on these shows that you can see is this brush that he puts before the beat. It's like, um, it's anticipation. It's an anticipating the beat. And as far as I know, Earl Scruggs developed this, and I, I love it. It always works for me. I love when I hear it. It kind of sounds like this. So, um, yeah, if you haven't seen those Martha White shows, check them out. I think they're all on YouTube now. And they're an incredible artifact, and I hold it dearly uh, close to my heart. Hi, this is Steve Dilling, and I wanted to share a quick story uh, or maybe a remembrance that I had with Earl Scruggs. Um, I was very fortunate to get to know Earl um, for many years, and uh, what a blessing. How many people can say they get to know and hang out with their heroes? But one particular story I wanted to share with you 
was at the <clears throat> IBMA award show. Uh, I don't recall exactly what year it was, but it was back in the late 90s. Uh, it was the year Bill Monroe died. Uh, and leading up to that point, uh, leading up to the IBMA awards, we had planned, I was working with Third Time Out, and we had planned to do a tribute to Flat and Scruggs on the award show. And uh, with all the Bill, all the stuff going on with Bill Monroe dying, we weren't sure if we needed to do that or not. And IBMA stepped in and said, please go ahead and, and do it as planned. So we did. So the night before the award show, I was in the hotel there. I, me and my wife had went up to visit with Earl and Louise Scruggs in their room. And we were just hanging out and talking and I was telling them about what we were going to do on the award show. And just out of the blue, Earl asked me if I wanted to play his banjo on that performance. And I was just shocked. I, I couldn't believe it. And I said, well, I'd be honored to do that. And this is his old Granada that uh, he played. He told me he had recorded uh, with that banjo from 1948. To, to current, he'd use that banjo on every recording. And, uh, man, so he told me just to take it with me. So I took it, uh, we left, and I went back down to my hotel room, and I had his banjo. Of course, I didn't tell anyone that I had it. Uh, we didn't make that announcement till we, we played on stage. But, uh, we played Salty Dog Blues. And uh, rolling my sweet baby's arms as a tribute to Flat and Scruggs, and, and getting to play Earl's banjo on that on the uh, IBMA award show was just a huge honor for me and a great memory. And it's funny, I have to say, we we got back to our hotel room that night, and I had Earl's banjo, and I started taking the back of the resonator off of it just to look inside and take some pictures and things like that. And my wife was like, what are you doing? What what in the world? You don't need to be messing with that. Thought I was just taking this old banjo apart. But uh, Earl was a great man, and, and I was so blessed to, to be friends with him. We just had the Christmas season, and uh, I get out all my Christmas cards that I got in the mail from him and Louise throughout the years, and they're always up on display. And... Uh, he was just uh, my hero, my friend, my mentor, and uh, what a great man. So uh, anyway, there's my Earl Scruggs story, and uh, thanks for asking me to be a part of this. And uh, Happy New Year to everyone. Let's hope 2021 is a great year for us. Take care. Hey, everybody. This is Ira Gitlin from the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, over the years, I've had the pleasure of being around Earl Scruggs a number of times, but I never really got to talk to him at any length at all. It was always, you know, getting an autograph or having a picture taken, but nothing really beyond that for the most part. There is, however, one incident that really sticks in my mind. This was in the late 1990s, back when the IBMA Business Conference and Award Show was in Louisville, Kentucky. Now, for several years before this, Scruggs had been in the audience at the award show, and of course, his presence was always graciously acknowledged. And there was even one year where Steve Dilling appeared on stage and played Scruggs' famous Granada. But we didn't get to hear from the man himself. 
this one particular year I'm thinking of, though, Vince Gill was the award show host. And when the curtain went up on the closing number, which, you know, was always a big all-star extravaganza, a huge roar went up from the crowd because there was Earl on stage with his banjo. We knew he was going to play for us. And the song they did was Vince Gill's song, That High Lonesome Sound, you know, which was getting a lot of radio airplay at the time. And in the second verse of the song, Scruggs did a backup lick. And I'm not even going to try to play it for you because I really don't remember what it was. But I do remember that it used this menu of notes that we get a lot of licks and phrases out of. You know, it's basically a um, a major pentatonic scale. You might slide into that note. Uh, or you might, might get that flat seven. But, you know, it's the, the bunch of notes that gives us licks like... Or... Or, um, you know, mostly those are for backup, but you also get it in lead, like Foggy Mountain Special, you know, when it gets to the, the five chord, it goes. That kind of stuff. Anyway, Scruggs did this backup lick, and it came out of that bunch of notes, but it was different from anything I'd ever heard. I can't even explain it. Something about the timing, maybe? I don't know. A few minutes later... Leaving the auditorium, I ran across Bob Amos, who at the time had the band Front Range, and, um, you know, said hi to him. And I said, and hey, did you hear in the second verse? And before I could even finish, he said, yeah, what was that lick? I have to imagine that every banjo player in the audience took note of that. And think about this. This was, I don't know, Scruggs had been playing licks like that on record and live for well over 50 years at that point. And all of those, all of us who play banjo had been playing those licks. And there's all these different variants of it, and we'd heard them all. And yet, even after all of that water under the bridge, Scruggs was able to take that same half dozen notes or so and come up with something that nobody had ever thought of before. And that's really amazing. You know, he, he was a great player. He could play fast. He could play complex. But when you get down to it, what really made him so important was his musical imagination. And that imagination was still working and still generating stuff, even after all that he had been through. And that's really kind of an inspiring thing. And um, if I can come up with just one lick that will strike somebody that way, I'll feel really proud, and if I do, it's going to be thanks to Earl. Hey, this is Ned Luberecki, and my first encounter with Earl Scruggs was actually over the telephone. Here's what happened. Back in the early 1980s, when I was still in high school, I was working at a music store called Baltimore Bluegrass, where we sold banjos and guitars and records and such, and uh, Mike Munford was working there at the same time. Well, a customer came in one day, and he wanted to order a bunch of these old guitar capos that uh, hadn't been made in years. They were the old-style kind that had a big spring-loaded clamp on the back that was protected with a piece of cork that always wore out, wore off, and uh, if you see old Martin guitars that have these big gouges out of the back of the neck. It was this capo that usually did it. 
Well, this guy wanted to order five or six of them, as many as I could find for him. And I took the order, the guy left, and I went back to Mike and I said, Mike, where do you think we can find some of these capos? Mike said, did you try the Scruggs catalog? I just looked at him sideways and said, Scruggs catalog? What are you talking about? Well, I didn't realize this, but back in the 1960s and 70s, Earl Scruggs had a mail order music catalog. It was called Scruggs and Sons Music. And in the catalog, you could buy the Earl Scruggs banjo book. You could buy a few Earl Scruggs records, and you can also also buy some banjo parts. He sold strings and picks and, you know, heads and bridges and such and a few other sundry items. So I dug through our file cabinet of old catalogs and sure enough, way in the back, I found one that had been printed back in the 1970s, I guess. And I pulled it out and looked and I found the stuff I was looking for. I found that capo and a couple other hard to find banjo parts. So I looked at Mike and I said, are they still in business? And Mike said, only one way to find out, call the number. So I looked in the, on there, and there's a, a area code 615 telephone number. And, of course, back in these days, when you called a long-distance phone number, it cost extra. So I wanted to make this quick because, you know, I didn't want to cost the store a bunch of money on this uh, long-distance telephone call. But I called the number to find out if they were there, and a woman's voice answered, said, Hello, and I said, Hi, this is Ned. I'm calling from Baltimore Bluegrass, trying to place an order with Scruggs & Sons Music Catalog. Are you still taking orders? And she said, Oh, hold on. And she puts the phone down, and I figured, Was that Louise? Well, next, this voice picks up and goes, Hello. And I knew right away it was Earl. Now, if you've ever heard Earl Scruggs interviewed, you know that Earl was not a fast talker. Earl spoke very slowly and deliberately and had this, uh, you know, old uh, North Carolina accent. And it was actually part of what made his sense of humor also so effective was the way he would sort of phrase things and the way he would talk. Well, Earl answered the phone and said, and I said, hey, my name is Ned. I'm trying to be cool here. I'm talking to Earl Scruggs, but trying to be professional. So I said, my name's Ned. I'm calling from Baltimore Bluegrass, and I want to order a couple of things out of the catalog. Do you still have them? And he says, well, hold on. And he goes away. He comes back. And he says, what is it that you wanted? And I guess you got a pad of paper and a pen. And I said, well, there's the number 412 guitar capo, the number 412 guitar capo and i said the number is 619 banjo armrest number 619 and i go through three or four items and finally he says well hold on he puts the phone down and again i'm seeing the phone in my mind going down on the kitchen cabinet and earl going down into the basement and digging through a bunch of old boxes or things and i don't know how long this was maybe five minutes it seemed like forever and finally earl comes back on the phone and he says well i've got four of the capos and three of the armrests and he goes through the list and i said i'll take them all just put them in a box Mail them to Baltimore Bluegrass, 5502 Bel Air Road, Baltimore Bluegrass, 5502. And it just, it's taking forever. But finally he gets off and I say thank you. And he says, thanks for the order. Have a nice day. And, and I hang up the phone and I look across the room and Mike is sitting there just grinning at me from ear to ear. And he looks up and he says, 
did you talk to Earl? <laughs> and I looked at Mike and I said, Mike, that is the slowest conversation I think I've ever been a part of. And Mike said, you know, Ned said back in the forties and fifties, when Earl first hit the scene with his fancy banjo style, people thought it was the fastest thing they'd ever heard to Earl. It must've seemed like light speed. And we both had a laugh over that, but I've encountered Earl a few times since then. Uh, and uh, he'd always been very gracious, always in that very slow, deliberate manner of speech and usually pretty funny with it as well. So that was the first time I got to talk to Earl Scruggs, and I will never forget it. I'm Ned Lubarecki. Thanks. Hey, sorry to interrupt everybody, but I just couldn't resist an opportunity to tell you about the world's most trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted instruments. And that, of course, is Elderly Instruments, which is a family-owned business located in Lansing, Michigan. But if you're not in Lansing, that's okay. They ship worldwide, too. And they just have a vast selection of acoustic guitars, electric guitars, ukuleles, mandolins, all the accessories and books that you'd want for either of those, and of course, plenty and plenty of banjos. And something that people don't often think about when you're buying stuff like that, particularly entry-level instruments, is the fact that they have a world-renowned repair shop as well. When all those instruments come into the store, if they do not pass a thorough setup and inspection by the repair shop, they get sent back. And that sometimes angers the suppliers of elderly instruments, but it lets you know that elderly stands by their products. And they also have a helpful and knowledgeable sales staff to help you find what you need. And you can be confident that you're going to get something that is set up to elderly's high quality standards. So if that sounds great, and I know it does, Check them out at elderly.com or call 517-372-7880 to speak to one of their helpful salespeople. It's where I go and it's where you should go to. The Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast is also proud to be sponsored by Peghead Nation. With Peghead Nation's streaming video courses, perfect for quarantine by the way, but they have courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele, you can learn bluegrass, old time, and plenty of other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. For example, listen to some of the courses. These are just the banjo courses that they offer. Uh, a couple different classes with Bill Evans, such as beginning banjo and bluegrass banjo. You can learn claw hammer banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward style banjo with Bruce Molsky, the banjo according to Danny Barnes, and also contemporary bluegrass banjo with Wesley Corbett. And each of those courses includes high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. So it's everything you need to up your skills, especially in these isolated times. And listen up, because this is the best part. If you join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now, you're going to get your first month free by going to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout. That's PICKYFINGERS, all one word, all lowercase, at pegheadnation.com. Check it out. Hey, this is John Mark Batchelor from North Carolina, and uh, I'm just really glad to be a part of this Earl Scruggs tribute. Earl has been my biggest hero as long as I can remember, at least since I was 15 years old, whenever I picked up a five-string. Back whenever I was touring and traveling with uh, Mike Cleveland and Flamekeeper, we had the chance of running into Earl 
in Nashville. And it's always neat whenever you can rub shoulders with your heroes and um, whenever they turn out to be just as nice as you would hope them to be, it just puts the cherry on top of the Sunday for you to speak. Me and Mike watched Earl play Foggy Mountain Breakdown on stage at IBMA from the corner of the stage. And uh, me and Mike were all smiles and we went back to the uh, backstage area and we saw him sitting there and uh, he was being uh, escorted around by Lizzie Long at the time. And uh, well, I went up to him, of course, nervous, and uh, asked him if he mind taking a picture with me and introduce myself. And uh, not thinking he would, I, I was just wanting to go around his side and take a picture. And he jumped right up, and uh, he was just the nicest person. Uh, and he did that for me and Mike. And uh, it just puts him on another level for me and he, he's just been my biggest hero for as long as I can remember some of the first licks I ever heard coming from Earl came from my TV uh, back in the 90s whenever my family was able to get a satellite dish and uh, we were able to watch all the different channels on TV of course TV Land was one of them and uh, Beverly Hillbillies came on I had never watched it before and my dad uh, was a big fan, so I started watching, and I heard those amazing sounds coming out of that five-string, and uh, from that day on, I was hooked. Um, I tried to pick up every Flat and Scruggs album that I could find. I uh, spent many days woodshedding as much as I could to figure out what Earl was doing, what made him have that amazing sound, and there'll never be anybody in my mind that can match it. I mean, I'm a big fan of all sorts of other banjo pickers out there, uh, and I'm extremely humbled by them all the time. But uh, Earl just set the bar for me, and I think he set the bar for a lot of people. And the, of course, the song I heard was Beverly Hillbillies, uh, the Ballad of Jay Clampett, and uh, I'm gonna play that one for you. And I, I gotta say, I love Earl. Thanks for letting me be on this podcast, and y'all keep picking. Okay, maybe this is off topic, but honestly, one of the things I love the most about Earl and find to be one of the most inspiring things about his musicianship is how he didn't seem to get that pressure to perform on stage a certain way. He just let his banjo playing speak for itself. And it was so musical and so incredible that, of course, everybody loved it. He, he trusted the audience to appreciate his music and not need a certain stage show, which a lot of performers feel they have to provide. Hey everyone, my name is Russell Carson, and I am the current banjo player for Ricky Skaggs in Kentucky Thunder. And when Keith reached out and asked if I'd like to be a part of this special episode honoring Earl Scruggs on 
this would it would have been his 96th birthday this year. I I couldn't say yes fast enough uh, because Earl is well. There are two men responsible for me even being associated with this this instrument. Uh, one being Earl and the other being my father, Glenn Carson, who is a banjo builder. So Earl supplied the initial fire for it, and then uh, my father just fanned the flames because, like I said, he was a builder, and we had banjos in uh, every single room of the house, pretty much. But uh, one of the other things that my father did was he was a big fan of recording music programs off the television on the VHS tapes, and... Uh, we had quite the library. By the by, the point that I could work the buttons on the VCR, we had, oh my goodness, we had Stefan Grappelli tapes, we had Tony Rice videos, Doc Watson, David Gray. We had all sorts of stuff. But the one that I found first, and the one that just hit me the hardest, was a tape of Earl. And it was, uh, funny enough, with my now boss. It was Ricky Skaggs' Monday night program live from the Ryman Auditorium uh, on the TNN network, the Nashville network. And he had Earl come out as his guest. And, I mean, I can still see that part of the show if I close my eyes to this day because Ricky stood uh, center stage and played Clawhammer banjo out to the house just demonstrating how the instrument would have been uh, played if it weren't for his next guest. And then he brought Earl out. And I just remember being this little kid and... And I mean, it just, it just hit me like nothing else. I, <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. And... Uh, it, you know that that tape made such an impact. I, I got up in the middle of the night to you know rewatch it, and my mother came downstairs. It must have been three three thirty in the morning, and she found me about six inches off our television screen, just glued, uh, running the tape back over and over again, just trying to figure out, you know, how he was not only playing what he was playing, but you know it was so effortless. And if you watch Earl play the banjo. He may as well have just like been reviewing his shopping list from Louise in the grocery store, just trying to figure out what to get. He just, it was such a natural extension of his person. Um, and, you know, like 22 years later, I'm still trying to figure out how he was able to do <laughs> pretty much everything that he did. Um, that, uh, that smoothly and that, uh, that calmly, it's, it's just, it's something else. I don't want to take up too much time here because I know Keith has assembled some some pretty stout folks to help carry the load, honoring Earl. Um, but one thing that Keith did ask is, you know, if there was a lick or something like that that uh, you know really made an impact. And this isn't so much a lick; it's it's a technique that Earl uh, Earl used in every aspect of his playing. And this is something that I shot a video of uh, for my YouTube channel a while back. And it's something that uh, I see a few people doing, but not not that many. And it's one of those small little detail pieces that really lifts up your playing as a whole because truly, you know, the little details add up to a really big picture. So what I'm talking about is something that you can hear when, uh, when Earl played Cripple Creek, especially.
specifically, what I'm talking about is his slide on the third string. Now, you know, starting at the, uh, the second fret, he wasn't sliding up to this note. He wasn't doing anything like that. He was stopping the slide at the third fret, but he was also pushing the third string sideways up towards the fourth string. So if you look at it mechanically, that's what I'm talking about. And the thing that makes it so cool is if you just look at it as an individual component, it's not really that musical. And I mean, if you listen to that note, that's what it is. I mean, it just grabs your ear and it doesn't let go. But if you listen to just about, you know, his hammer-ons, his pull-ons, all of that incorporates that little bend. So it's a huge, big deal when you look at it. And you can especially hear it in Cripple Creek. And uh, so once again, you, you, have to, uh, you have to stop your slide at the third fret and while you're sliding, you have to push up. And man, it just, it's, once you, uh, you hear it and you understand what he's doing, it's like someone shining a flashlight in your face. It's just there and you just hear it all over his playing. <laughs> but anyway, if, if I can impart any, uh, any wisdom or knowledge in my little uh, bit of this podcast, that's it. I would, uh, I would encourage you guys to check that out. I, like I said, I shot a YouTube video about this um, on my 81 Crow YouTube channel, and you can search for it. I believe it's under the Cripple Creek Bend or Cripple Creek Slide. It's, uh, it's been several years since I did that. Uh, and there have been many thousands of miles between then and now, and, well, the old brain isn't what it used to be, and I'm only 30, almost 32, so I think I'm doomed. But, uh, well, we already knew that. I'm a banjo player. So, happy birthday, Earl. And, Keith, thank you so much for having me uh, be a part of the podcast. And banjos rule. Don't let anybody tell you different. Hello, this is Alan Mundy. I'm a banjo player and uh, an admirer greatly of Earl Scruggs's playing and the music he made and the magic that was in his playing. And I've been asked to tell a Earl Scruggs story, of which I don't really have one uh, specifically about meeting Earl or being around him or anything, but it's a story that involves a good picking buddy of mine named Robert Bolin. And Robert is a really wonderful guitar player, fiddle player. I think he was the last fiddle player in Bill Monroe's band, a good mandolin player, and also uh, a piano player. And Robert has a degree in composition, I believe, from the University of Arkansas. So when I was hanging with uh, Robert I asked Robert, I said, you play so many 
instruments and so many different kinds of music. What is your favorite kind of music or what is your favorite music? And he said, well, you know, when Earl Scruggs does this lick that goes something like this, he says, I think I like that about the best. And I think that says a lot about all of us uh, who love Earl Scruggs for lots of different reasons. We love uh, his backup, love his solos, love just little teeny bits and pieces of his music. But most of all, I think just the sound that he made was like no other. We've all tried to do it. Uh, we've all done our own versions of what we think Earl Scruggs sounds like. But I've never heard anybody sound like Earl. Bless his heart. Hi, Keith. This is Stephen Moore. Thank you for having me on your banjo tribute to Earl on his birthday. I'd like to start out by saying I don't really consider myself to be a Scruggs-style player. But what a lot of people probably don't know about me is that all of my early banjo playing was very largely Scruggs-based. The first banjo album I ever had was the Foggy Mountain Banjo album, and I learned almost all of the songs on that album. I also, at one point, picked up a copy of the famous Earl Scruggs tab book, and I learned almost all of the songs in that book as well. So I think it's fitting, as a player that started out as a Scruggs-style player, who sort of migrated away from that into the more progressive banjo styles later, that now when I listen to Earl Scruggs' music, I deliberately am seeking out sort of the weird things that he did. And I'd like to bring uh, one of those things to light now and share with you here on this podcast. Most banjo players are going to be familiar with the song Dear Old Dixie, and the intro that Earl played is really kind of wacky. Let me go ahead and play it here. Now let's go ahead and slow that down a little bit so we can take a better look at it. So if we count that out, it's a nine count intro where the band would come in on the downbeat of the 10th beat. Let's go ahead and count it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, Now we can treat the later part of that intro as a count of four. One, two, three, four, and then the band would come in on the following one. Uh, or if you counted the whole thing, that would be the tenth beat of the whole intro. So that means that the first part of that intro is five counts. So we'll go ahead and count that out. One, two, three, four, five. So effectively, Earl has created an intro that is one measure of 5-4 and another measure of 4-4. Four, four. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, band in. So this is really something interesting that Earl did here, playing a measure of 5-4 followed by a measure of 4-4 four, four as the intro. I know when I first heard this song and I tried to learn the intro, it just seemed really off to me. There was something not working out in the count. And uh, that would be why. So it's a measure of 5-4 followed by a measure of 4-4. Four, four. So if there's anybody out there that's trying to learn this intro or that uh, is going to take a look at it now, definitely helps if you think of it as a measure of 5 followed by a measure of 4. Anyway, 
I hope everybody enjoyed taking a closer look at this quirky intro on Daryl Dixie. It's one of the strangest things I've ever heard Earl do. So thanks, Keith, for having me, and hopefully I'll see you all on the road in 2021. Hi, this is Casey Henry. One of my favorite memories about Earl Scruggs um, happened in his later years after Louise had passed away. Um, I was living in Madison, Tennessee at the time, and uh, Earl and Louise had moved down into Nashville. So I was at um, home one night in my jammies on the couch. It's like nine o'clock at night. I'm watching TV and I get a call on uh, my phone from Larry Perkins. Now, Larry Perkins, very close friend of Earl and took care of him a lot, especially after Louise died. So um, Larry says on the phone, Earl wants to pick. Now, there's not many people I would um, get off my couch after I'd already put on my jammies at night to pick with, but Earl certainly is at the top of that list. So Perk said, I'll pick you up. So I, needless to say, changed out of my pajamas, grabbed my banjo. Larry Perkins comes and picks me up with uh, Banjo, his dog, uh, sitting on the front seat between us. So we drive down to Earl's big mansion there in Nashville. And um, it's just a really small gathering, me and Larry Perkins and um, Lizzie Long was there. And I think uh, Leroy Troy was there as well. And we were just sitting around um, Earl's living room playing some music. And this is not the first time that I had met Earl. I had met him several times prior. But I think maybe um, it was the first time I had picked with him in such an intimate setting. Um, anyway, so my mind is, you know, like being blown all the time. So he is sitting on his big white couch. He's playing banjo. I'm playing banjo. And uh, Lizzie is playing fiddle. So they, um, she picks up the fiddle, just, just playing some little stuff around. And then uh, she starts into Sally Gooden. So she and Earl are sitting on the couch playing Sally Gooden, just fiddle and banjo. And he's playing, uh, you know, the lead to it. And it's just, it has that magical sound that his original cut of Sally Gooden had. And I always kind of thought that, that that magic was created a bit by the bass playing, which is backwards for a lot of the uh, tune. But but Earl had this rhythm, this feel to what he was playing. And, and I was just like, oh my gosh, that's the magic right there. That is it. I want to be able to do that. And it was just, you know, early enough in technology that I didn't have an iPhone that I could just whip out the voice recorder and turn it on. You know, I just, there was no way to capture it. It was just in the moment. And he was playing magic on his banjo. And I was just there soaking it up. And it was just the most amazing experience. So we, after that, of course, we'd picked a little more, you know, um, into, I don't know how late we picked, probably not terribly late. Um, but when uh, we got ready to go, um, you know, I packed up my banjo, which the one I was um, playing at the time was an old TB-11 with a Huber tone ring that my dad had made a five-string knife for. And I love this banjo. I think it's a quite good sounding banjo. So as I'm walking out the door, <clears throat> carrying my banjo in my case, Earl says, you want to leave that here? And I say, I'll trade you. Alas, he did not take me up on that offer.
Hey, Keith. Nick Hornbuckle here. Thanks so much for including me in this tribute to Earl Scruggs, one of my all-time favorite musicians. I had the pleasure of meeting Earl Scruggs a few times, and uh, a couple of the stories that, that come to mind are one time in 1999, a, a band of guys that I knew in, in the Seattle area wanted to go back and enter the band contest at this festival that was happening near Columbus, Ohio, and they had asked me to fill in on bass, which I happily did. And this is one of the first times that Earl Scruggs had sort of come out of retirement, and it was a, it was a pretty big deal to us banjo players. But anyway, so one afternoon I was standing up on the side of the stage and, and watching the, the seldom seen play. They were sounding great. Ben Eldridge, an amazing banjo player. I happened to look back towards the audience and sort of this progressive wave of the audience standing up and turning around and facing the back of the park was this wave of people was moving towards me and it was really kind of, it was kind of funny. And then I, I saw way back in the back of the park, there was uh, two or three of these big Silver Eagle buses coming in the back of the park and come to find out those buses were Earl Scruggs buses. So while the seldom scene was on stage tearing it up, the audience was stood up facing the other way, watching Earl Scruggs drive into the park. It was... <laughs> I felt pretty bad for the seldom scene, but it was just, just to show you how high of a regard people held Earl Scruggs, and it was kind of funny. Uh, the other story that, that I'd like to share is that uh, several years ago, the Jaybirds played at the Edmonton Folk Festival, and uh, Earl Scruggs was there with his, his sons, and one night after the, after the uh, concerts were done, we were in uh, one of our friend's hotel rooms just jamming, you know, playing, playing bluegrass tunes and, um, uh, you know, playing flat and scruggs tunes because that's what I love to play. And in between one of the tunes, I made the sort of smart-alecky remark, you know, wouldn't it be funny if Earl and Louise were right next door kind of wondering who was, who was making all this racket? And then we continued on playing and... And we took a little bit of a break, and our bass player, Tricia, uh, was going to go back to her room for something. And she went and opened the, the door to the hotel, and, well, who was standing there but Gary Scruggs? And uh, he says to Tricia, wow, you all sound great. Mama and Daddy are just in the next room, and they're kind of wondering who was over here playing. <laughs> well, needless to say, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I didn't know that at the time. Uh, anyway, happy birthday, Earl. You're one of my favorite musicians ever, and thanks so much, Keith. All right, thanks very much. I'll play something that I heard on a live recording of Flat and Scruggs. I think it was sometime in the mid-60s, maybe. And uh, the tune is called Gonna Have Myself a Ball, and it's, it's in the key of F, and it's just absolutely one of my favorite Earl Scruggs solos. It's really cool. It goes something like this. Hey guys, this is uh, Derek Faden with the Larry Stevenson Band and hashtag Tuner Tune Thursday. Earl changed my life. I learned how to play or learned how to work out my three finger roll by playing along to his kickoff 
on Will the Circle Be Unbroken from the from the Dirt Band album. And, you know, from there it was off and running. Everything else was on that record, too. Earl's Breakdown, Flint Hill Special. Like, it's all the stuff you need. He plays great backup on other songs. I got to meet him one time when I was 19. I think he was 86 at that point. We ended up spending the night in the same house, and there was a jam session. And he didn't play, but he sat right next to me. And at one point, he just sort of looked over. And if everyone has experienced the fear of God, it was right at that moment. Never had stage fright again after that. Not one time. I sort of agree with uh, with Sonny Osborne when it comes to playing. That uh, as a banjo player, if you learn every note right where it's supposed to be from that Foggy Mountain banjo album, then, you know, your right hand will be set up to play just exactly whatever you want to, whether it be Scruggs style, melodic stuff, you know, all, all the, all the foundations are right there. I think I mentioned that in the, the episode that I did. You just got to learn that stuff. I heard a, I heard an interview with Bela recently, and I don't remember where it was at. I'm sure it could be found on his social media pages, but he said, you know, there's a lot of banjo players that have started from Bela, from him, and they're worse off for it for not having started with Scruggs. Wholeheartedly agree. It's 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 the basic math and building blocks. And we're all here. We're doing this podcast. You know, we're all involved in this podcast and getting to do this fun stuff and getting to meet all these new people because that shy boy from Shelby, North Carolina stepped on a stage one night, December of 1945 and changed, changed the world. So glad for it. So glad for it. Hey everyone, Ben Krakauer here. Every time I listen to Earl Scruggs, I'm so struck by what an original he is and how he Earl Scruggs does not sound the same as Scruggs style banjo, if that makes sense. I'm always surprised when I listen to him. It's really amazing, you know, to think about what he did to put it in, in historical context. I mean, he brings together so many styles of of regional and, and popular uh, music from the you know early and mid 20th century. I mean, he you know he's playing this banjo in a string band context but he's playing this finger style that is drawing so much, I mean, particularly from so many different black American styles, from ragtime music, which was this popular thing in the, the turn of the century and still was influencing popular music, you know, while he was growing up. And just hearing how he uh, kind of approaches banjo like a you know, ragtime like piano or something. And of course, also bringing in Piedmont blues kind of finger picking tradition that was really a uh, prominent thing around the, in Shelby, North Carolina, in that area where he grew up and drawing from all these two-finger banjo players that were doing all this kind of blues and jug band kind of uh, repertoire. And, and of course, playing at these fast tempos, like what, what Bill Monroe's band was doing and playing at the tempos of these, you know, hoedown fiddling. Um, it, anyway, it's just just amazing what he does. And, and when, I, when I try to, anytime I try to play like him, like if I listen to a recording and try to learn what play what he's doing, I'm just struck by how unique and awesome his timing is. 
it's just this really great thing. I mean, the, the articulation of notes reminds me of listening to like a really good old time jam where people are subdividing in this really strong way, like each person kind of according to their own inner rhythm, but also with each other. And of course, I'm also struck by the the way he, you know, syncopates his roles. Um, and it's so cool to learn his solos because it's never like it always sounds like a Scruggs style solo. But whenever I actually learn an Earl Scruggs solo, he doesn't do the same variations of the Scruggs licks that I would just default to. So actually today I was trying to get, think about what I might talk about for this little tribute. And I was listening to some flat Scruggs recordings. And the one that really struck me was Little Darling Pal of Mine, first from the Carnegie concert, but then I was listening to the Foggy Mountain banjo version. And it's just so great. Um, I'm gonna take a stab at it here. You know, this is not gonna sound like Earl, but this is just a loving uh, tribute to to what he did on the banjo. That it's just a gift that continues to give. part there for the fiddle anyway what can i say about it it's just really really great check it out if you're a i assume you're a banjo player for listening to this show so check it out try to learn that solo it's just it's really fun cheers everyone happy holidays be safe hi out there in podcast land this is dr banjo pete wernick ready to share some reminiscences about the great earl scruggs with you in honor of his 97th birthday when I was not quite 15 and had just started playing, Flat and Scruggs played in New York City, and I couldn't have been more excited. This was January 1961. I was having fits there in my seat, hearing him play a few lead-in notes, which I could follow, <clears throat> and then unleash a blizzard of amazing notes, leading me to almost lose my mind. At the end of the show, I, I crowded around the stage with some other New York people, and was close enough to hear him talk to the fans. Uh, one typical New York kid said, I used to think Pete Seeger was the best banjo player, but you're a lot better than him. To which Earl answered, Ah, Pete's a good guy. And that was one of the first times I ever heard a person speak in a southern accent, which was striking by itself. Everyone I knew would have said, Guy. But I was mostly impressed by Earl's brief and gracious response. Years later, I was given his phone number by John Hartford, who encouraged me to call him up so I could visit him in Nashville. I was too scared, but when a journalist friend of mine who had interviewed him asked him if he'd ever heard of Hot Rise, he said he'd heard of us and heard us on the Opry and thought we were good. So that gave me some nerve, and when I called, quite nervous, he couldn't have been nicer and invited me over. That was the first of what must have been dozens of times I would call up when I was in town, and he or Louise would say, come on over. So we would get into all kinds of conversations, as those were years when Earl was out of action due to having severe back problems, and he was spending a lot of time just sitting in his living room chair. He was generally shy, but 
as time went on with me, he became a lot more chatty than I imagined. And many times we'd converse on and on into the night. So I came to realize that Earl was getting something out of the visits, not just me. We played one-on-one one, one -on -one a few times. He would say, get out your banjo. And I tried to be as nonchalant as possible as I played, but it would occasionally blow my mind when it occurred to me who I was playing music with. You can imagine. So I just try to play and not think about that. It happens that a pet peeve of mine is when two banjos are playing and the one doing backup plays anything but a pretty light and clear chop. If they start improving, it can really interfere. So I was super careful about that. One time, he actually complimented me on my backup. That couldn't have made me more proud. All I was doing was chopping clearly enough to match his timing. But that was really a thrill to hear that. Earl was always so nice to me and had a great attitude toward other players, always welcoming. When Tom Adams was on hard times with hand problems and his first wife had just died of cancer, I told Earl about Tom's situation. He asked me for Tom's phone number and later called him up. And dang it, he wasn't home, but Earl spoke to Tom's wife, Judy, and she told me later that Tom was stunned and, of course, highly honored by Earl making that call. Earl was pretty good about not playing anything that wasn't needed, and sometimes that also applied to his conversation. More than once, I would ask him about something he had played on a record or even something that I just heard him play. And he pretty much always said, I don't know. I thought maybe he was putting me off, but I, I really think he didn't know. Sometimes he tried playing it again, but it would come out different. One thing I heard him playing once was so cool, and I'd never heard it before. So I asked him if I could record it so I could try to learn it. And he actually let me. I said, what is that? And he said, obelisk flower. And he played it again. I said, what's obelisk flower? He said, uh, they were a radio sponsor. Then he started singing this little jingle. It's songs and music for a quarter of an hour, a few kind words about obelisk flower. Later, I googled obelisk flower, and it was a company in Louisville that had gone out of business around 1940. And here was Earl picking out their radio jingle maybe 60 years later. Sometimes he'd ask me to play something of my own, and I'd always try to pick something he might like, and he would never comment. One time I did something I later realized was pretty idiotic. I had stumbled on how to play the B part of Cripple Creek using only the D tuners, so I played it for him. He just commented, that's a good sounding badger. Sometime later, I realized I had been playing licks that Buck Trent used all the time playing with Porter Wagner, who, of course, anyone in Nashville would hear regularly on the Opry. And here I was showing this stuff to Earl as though it was my brilliant discovery. So all he said was, that's a good sounding badger. That's Earl. I treasured every moment I spent with him. Happy birthday, my dear friend. Hi, all you listeners of Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. 
This is Gabe Hirschfeld, and I'm going to tell you about how Earl Scruggs impacted my life. Well, first of all, uh, thanks to Keith for putting together such a great podcast. I get all my world news and hear about all the local events and stuff through the podcast, so I'm real well informed these days. I appreciate that. Uh, anyway, I first heard Earl Scruggs when I was 14 or 15, I think, and uh, I had heard of the band Flattened Scruggs before I heard Earl. Uh, but I didn't know Earl was a banjo player, and I thought that Flatten Scruggs was a rock and roll band. Um, shows you how uninformed I was. But uh, my parents liked folk music and stuff, like the King uh, Kingston Trio and stuff. So I was around banjo, or rather the sound of banjo, a lot. Uh, and my mom listened to Pete Seeger a lot. Um, so I was around the sound of it a lot, but uh, it never really struck me uh in a huge way until i heard earl scruggs um and before i heard earl scruggs i had played piano for seven or eight years and i really didn't like it no offense to any well a little offense to some piano players out there but it's just so big and heavy you can't really bring it anywhere uh, and i just really didn't like practicing it or playing it it didn't really speak to me uh, and I bet it doesn't speak to some of you as well. But uh, anyway, uh, enough. Uh, I'm done throwing shade on piano players here. Uh, anyway, uh, my dad did the fatherly thing and said, well, I never learned a musical instrument. Uh, and since you're quitting piano, uh, you know, you need to learn a musical instrument because I didn't do it and I regretted it. Uh, and, you know, I, he probably regretted saying that when I decided to become a professional banjo player, but you know, what, what are you going to do? The past is the past. Uh, anyway, um, he told me I had two weeks to decide. And after two weeks I hadn't decided. So, you know, there you go. I didn't decide. So now he has to decide for me. So he said, you're going to play the vibraphone. And I said, okay, whatever. And so he got me a little starter set of vibraphones and I hit one note. And uh, he said, no, we're not going to have that in the house. Um, and li little did he know what was coming. Um, anyway, so he said, I'll give you another week. And so we were driving someplace in the car. I was too young to drive at that point. So he had to drive me everywhere. And uh, the NPR came on and he liked to listen to car talk. And I heard this. <laughs> to do that. And so uh, I looked I looked it up and I found that it was Earl Scruggs playing Doggy Mountain Breakdown, which is a David Grisman banjo tune. And uh, I got really excited. So I got a deer in good time and I started playing Clawhammer banjo because that's what the teacher that I found uh, taught. And I didn't know the difference. So I kind of just figured that, uh, you know, once I started to be able to play Clawhammer fast enough, it would sound like Earl Scruggs. Um, and then 
one day after about a year, I told my teacher, Hey, I don't think I'm really getting anywhere. It's not really, it's not really sounding right. And he said, Oh, that that's a completely different style of playing, you know? So mind blown and uh year wait. Well, no, not a year wasted. I love claw hammer and I still play claw hammer, but uh, Earl Scruggs's playing was, you know, where I wanted to be. Uh, anyway, I, I found a, a new teacher and uh, he showed me the three finger style. And, you know, that's uh, that's how I got to be where I am today. Playing the banjo, sitting here in the my pajama pants. But uh, anyway, quickly before I go here. I'll tell you about my two favorite Earl Scruggs licks, and they're from a recording of Foggy Mountain Breakdown. Um, I believe from the record, The Story of Bonnie and Clyde, and they're actually two Phil licks. Um, and they're in, I believe, the Dobro solo and the harmonica solo. Uh, so anyway, the first one in context is this. Something like that. The second one, which is my favorite lick of all time, in context, is this. So that... It's got that little quip there. Anyway, uh, I hope you all have a happy new year, and uh, let's all listen to a lot more Earl Scruggs. Bye-bye. Hello, Keith and Picky Fingers podcast people. This is Steve Cooley. Relate a little story about me and the banjo and Earl Scruggs. Back years ago when um, I was learning how to play the banjo, Earl Scruggs was my primary source of inspiration because back then we just didn't have all the media outlet, social media, internet, YouTube, um, capabilities to where you could really research a whole lot about the banjo. Um, and Earl Scruggs, I had seen him on the Beverly Hillbillies from when I was a younger person. Um, and I just loved the sound of the banjo. Uh, I, I didn't equate it to being Scruggs style banjo, but I, I loved the way that that particular banjo when I heard it, I just loved the way that it sounded, the, the tone of it, not necessarily even the playing style, um, but the sound of the instrument itself. I uh, eventually got a banjo after a number of years. I was probably 13, 12 or 13, somewhere around 1970, um, and I got a banjo. Uh, and we didn't have a whole lot of materials to learn the banjo with at that point. It was, it was really hard to come up with things to educate yourself about the banjo. I couldn't figure out how to tune it for almost a year after I got a banjo. Um, finally, an old timer that, that played frailing banjo and, and, uh, two finger style banjo that was working on my grandparents' farm. He, showed me how to tune the banjo and I figured out how to get it tuned. Um, I tried to find the Earl Scruggs banjo book. I became aware that it was an item that could be had and that, um, 
After learning how to play some two-finger style, I realized I wasn't making it sound a whole lot like Earl, but I, I eventually got a Earl Scruggs banjo book, um, and the tablature scared me to pieces. I was able to learn how to play Cripple Creek and my basic roles and sort of get through part of the other stuff, but mostly I slowed down records. Um, and because where I lived, and there just wasn't a whole lot of material out there, uh, most all the records I was able to get were Earl Scruggs records. And I did have some Don Reno stuff, and as time wore on, I got some modern local bands records, and I got some J.D. Crow records. But Earl Scruggs had always been my touchstone. He'd always been what what made the sound of his instrument, just the tone of it, was just so impeccably wonderful. Um, and that's what drove me to play the banjo, was the sound of the banjo, um, Earl's banjo. I, I did get to see Earl play shortly after I'd been playing, learning how to play the banjo. My dad took me to an Earl Scruggs review show. And that was before there was a whole lot of banjo pickups available or anything. So it was Earl and his boys and Uncle Josh was playing and Vassar was playing. It was a great band. And Earl was playing into a microphone and it sounded like a million bucks. Sounded awesome. Just everything that I really wanted a banjo to sound like. Um, and I got to watch their show. It was a nice long show. After the show was over, my dad and I were in our car heading across the parking lot and Earl was walking out carrying his banjo case said Earl Scruggs on it and I got my dad to stop the car and I was able to go over and get Earl's autograph um Earl didn't really shake hands with people I, I found out later that that was one of his things he wanted to protect that hand I guess uh but he was super super nice just, you know, he gave me his time. Um, he didn't try to brush me off, rush me out of there. He answered a couple of questions for me. Um, and it, it was great to be with him. Several years later, um, while visiting a friend in Nashville, the y'all might have heard of his banjo playing too, my friend Bay Fleck. Um, he asked me if I wanted to run over to Earl's. He'd gotten to be pretty good pals with Earl and um, I'd met Earl a couple of other occasions and whatnot. And honestly, I, I couldn't have any done anything to enrich Earl Scruggs's life if I'd gone to visit with him at his house, because he definitely already changed mine. And I think I would have probably shortchanged him. I'm an okay conversationalist, but I couldn't have given back to Earl Scruggs what Earl Scruggs has given to me or any of us. And, uh, I'm sure glad that Earl Scruggs was born. Happy birthday to Earl Scruggs. Hey, this is Mark Cassidy from the Hillbenders and the Get Down Boys coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Uh, happy birthday, Earl Scruggs, a legend. Without Earl, we wouldn't have the uh, sounds that we do today on banjo. And Earl's stylings really paved the way for so many innovative techniques and so many uh, cool recordings and ideas that we've heard uh, throughout the years in this both um, traditional and progressive bluegrass music that we're hearing. He really uh, created it. So thank you so much, Earl, for everything. I remember the first time that I saw Earl Scruggs. I was about 12 years or 14, in between 12 and 14 years old um, at Huck Finn Jubilee 
in Victorville, California, and I was so excited all year when I saw that Earl Scruggs was going to be the headliner that year, and just couldn't wait. I was getting butterflies in my stomach. Uh, this hero of mine, Earl Scruggs, was coming, and uh, when the day came, I think he was in his 80s at the time, put on an amazing show, couldn't believe it, and still had it, still had the chops, and still really killed that whole set, and it was a joy to watch with my father. Then afterwards, he was offering autographs, and my dad was kind enough to also wait in line because Earl was only signing one thing at a time. So I got my banjo strap and a uh, banjo head autographed by the great Earl Scruggs, and uh, that banjo head is still hanging up in my room, and uh, I will carry it forever with me and hopefully pass it on to uh, the next generation. Uh, I'll leave you with a lick. One of my favorite licks Earl uh, came up with, I thought it was such an innovative lick, that I heard him play on Bugle Call Rag. Happy birthday, Earl. Howdy, folks, howdy. This is Butch Robbins. In this time of remembering Earl Scruggs and celebrating his birthday, I would like to share with you my memory of my first encounter. When I was a young fellow, I lived over near Asheville, North Carolina, and uh, been playing the banjo for maybe a year. I was about 13 years old at that point. And the old fellow who taught me the three-finger roll, Homer Israel, and his buddy Boomer Long took me to Spartanburg, South Carolina to see a country music package show. Well, when we got down there, it's at the Civic Auditorium, I think. Anyhow, we went through the ticket taker, went through the lobby and everything. And when we opened those double doors to walk down one of the aisles to our seat, Lester and Earl started off on Flint Hill Special. Those tuners going and everything. It was so exciting. I'd seen them on TV. I'd heard their records. But this was live right there seeing them. And it was so exciting to me. Well, they did their show and Mother Maybell came out and joined them. After that, they had an intermission and, and Josh and Jake and Paul were walking up down the aisle selling songbooks and giving away Martha White coupons. Anyhow, the show starts back up. Bill Anderson, the star of the show, uh, came out, had his hit record of Steel, did all that, and Reno and Smiley wound up closing the show. Anyhow, when it was over, I can remember I told Homer I wanted to try to sneak back there and, and meet Earl. So he said that was okay. So I, went, I remember going up the left side of the stage and passed a guy I thought was a guard, but he didn't say anything to me, and made my way back to till I found Lester and Earl's dressing room. When I did, all the guys are putting up their stuff, you know, getting it all hauled out to the bus. And Earl was over. He's just putting his banjo in the case. I went up to him and said, I said, Mr. Scruggs, my name's Butch Robbins. I've been playing the banjo about a year. And that was just a really, really great show. Your playing's wonderful and all that. And he thanked me. And I tried to make a little bit of small talk with him. And he was putting his banjo away there and, and, and uh I said, Mr. Scruggs, that's a great banjo you got out there. Have you ever considered selling it? And his response to me was, or would I ever find me another? <laughs> Thank you, Earl Scruggs. Thank you so much for sharing your musical gift with us. All right, for today's tune, our tunes, we're going to do uh, something that I had uh, put on my first Rounder album years ago. This is when I put three Earl Scruggs tunes together, and I 
thing we call the Scruggs medley. It'll be bugle call rag, ground speed, and Randy Lynn rag. So here we go. Three, four. Thanks for listening, everybody, to this birthday tribute to Earl Scruggs. Thank you to my very special Patreon supporters, Mark Van and Connor Stokes. Go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to find out how you can become a supporter and contact the show at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. That's going to do it for this episode. Happy birthday, Earl, and I'll see the rest of you next time. <laughs>